Again, if you would like a copy of pre-publication of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, please go to the Shmuz, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z dot com. The Shmuz website on the homepage over there, you will see a place where you could order it, and uh, it'll come shortly to your house, Mitzvah Shem. Okay, we are about ready, and again, please feel free at any time when I'm speaking, please feel free to uh, type questions in, and again, I'll take them live when I'm finished. In this week's Parsha, we have a very detailed, long list of what we should eat and what we shouldn't eat, what are the simonim, what are the signs of a kosher animal, what are the signs of a non-kosher animal, and this is the Torah's introduction to the various machalas asuros, the various forbidden foods, and what we are, in fact, allowed to eat. But what's interesting to note is that when it's introduced, the Pesach begins, Dabru Abnei Yisrael Lemar. Shem says to Moshe, Speak to Abnei Yisrael, saying, This is the animal that you should eat. From all behemah that are on the, are on the land. And Rashi notes that the word chaya doesn't really fit in. Zos hachaya really shouldn't be there because it's not just chaya. And even though it's true, behemah is part of chaya, but it's the wrong expression to use. Explains Rashi, that actually teaches us a great principle. And that is the underpinning and the very reason for forbidden foods. And why is it that Hashem forbade us to eat these various foods that are not kosher? You can learn that from Zosa Chaya. Explains Rashi, Chaya is from the Lashon Chaim living. And explains Rashi, because Yisrael advukim bamokam. The Klai Yisrael advik to Hashem, and they will live for eternity. Therefore Hashem gives us various mitzvahs that will aid us in that process, that will help us. Therefore Hashem separated us from Tumah where the Umas Olam and the Goyim do not have the world to come, certainly not automatically, and, and therefore, since they do not automatically have a world to come, therefore Hashem did not give them these various mitzvahs, and in fact they do not have to any mitzvahs of eating kosher or not kosher, etc. But then Rashi quotes a Medrash who says, let me give you a mushal. Imagine a doctor. And the doctor visits one patient and gives them a very strict diet. This you should eat, this you shouldn't eat, this you should eat, this you shouldn't eat. Then the doctor visits another patient. And the doctor says, eat whatever you like. You go ahead. Someone asks the doctor, why is it that you're giving a very very different diet to the two patients? Explains the doctor, the first patient is going to live. And it's very important that he gets the proper nutrients. Very important that his body rebuilds. Therefore, I gave him a very strict diet. The second patient... I'm afraid to say, isn't going to make it. Let him at least enjoy his stay in the world. <clears throat> Explains Rashi, that's why the Torah says, the Jewish people, since you're slated for the world to come, you're slated to live forever, and therefore you should eat only these foods, because this will give you the life in the world to come. And that's how Rashi explains the reason why the Torah forbids machalas asuras, forbidden foods. Now, this Rashi is very difficult to understand. Why? Because, let's go to the mushal for a minute. When the doctor says to the sick man, eat this food and don't eat this food, it's because those foods are vital to his health. When you eat particular foods, it gives you the nutrients you need, and your body's able to break them down and rebuild. Therefore, those foods are very particularly ordained for the sick man to allow him to heal. But what connection does it have to do with tray food? Tray food is a chok. It's just one of those laws that we can't understand. It's one of the laws in the Torah. 
what does eating the right foods, which builds the body, have to do with a chok called not eating tray food? The two have no correlation, the mushal doesn't seem to help, and the question ultimately is, what does Rashi mean? And I'd like to see if we could dig into this Rashi and better understand <coughs> what, in fact, this Chazal is teaching us. And to do that, let's take a step back on this and reflect on this entity called man. If you study the entire world, the entire cosmos, <coughs> you will find everything has a nature, everything has set parameters. Certainly in the living world, every animal has a very distinct nature. A cat, a dog, a horse, a cow... If you understand the nature of the animal, you can either domesticate it or you can't, but it has a very particular nature, and you could determine based on its nature what you will expect it to do, what you won't expect it to do, etc. The one exception to that is man. Man comes in so many different flavors, variations, nuances, and if you ever try to predict what a human being is going to do, I wish you luck, because it is a very, very speculative bet. Because human beings are incredibly fickle. But not only are we incredibly fickle, if you study the person called I, you'll find that I am often in utter contradiction. One minute I can be the nicest guy in the world. And I could go out of my way with such zeal to help somebody. And the next minute, catch me in the wrong mood, the wrong person said the wrong line, and boom! I'm nasty, cutthroat, really not a nice guy. The odd part is, I'm not Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I don't believe I have some psychotic condition. I am a human being. And the human being has so many different parts to him. And the human being is so complex. And if you ever study yourself very carefully, you'll quickly note there are many, many behaviors that really don't make a lot of sense. If you're married, certainly after you read this book, for sure, you'll note that couples oftentimes get into little squabbles, sometimes fights. I've spent many years dealing with hundreds and hundreds of couples, and I've reached that obvious conclusion that when couples fight, do you know what they fight about? The minutia, the smallest, irrelevant, foolish things that make no difference. And at a certain point, you've got to ask, what's going on? And I'd like to share with you what's going on. The human being is incredibly complex, and there are various deep-seated emotions and understandings, and what triggers every fight is not the issue, it's the underlying emotions. And when you understand that the human being, that's you and I, am a living contradiction, you can begin to understand who I am and how to actually work on yourself and to develop yourself. And the Chovah Zavavah puts this into very clear parameters. He explains that when Hashem created man, Hashem took two diverse parts, two competing elements, and put them together. And these two elements, he explains, are actually at war. They're fighting one against the other, constantly battling for primacy. One or the other will gain primacy. Those two parts of the human are the nefesh asichli, the wise neshama, and the nefesh bahami, the animal soul. Two diverse parts. Within me, two different voices, each speaking, each having its desire, and one or the other wins out. And if you'd like to fundamentally understand man, you have to understand the two parts very clearly. And to do that, let's sort of tease them apart. And let's deal first with the nefesh abahami, and then we'll deal with the nefesh hasichli. 
The nefesh of Bahami in the human is much like any animal that has a nefesh. Every animal in the wild kingdom has, an, has instincts, proclivities, inclinations. A dog has a very real nature. If you've ever owned a dog, you know that a dog forms very strong attachments. <clears throat> there are very real instincts within it. Hashem implanted into the nefesh of every animal all of the desires and instincts to keep it alive as well as to bring the next species into existence. It's not seichel, it's not intellect, it's instinctual. Two bullfrogs don't sit by and say, you know, I think it's time we settle down and bring up a family. The robin hungers for the worm. The bullfrog mates. The robin naturally seeks out that which sustains it. It doesn't understand the nutrients needed. It doesn't recognize that the earthworm is a very available substance. It hungers. It has a natural instinct. Hashem implanted into each animal all of the instincts needed to keep it alive as well as to bring the next species into existence. And if you study the natural world, you'll find some phenomenal feats of great wisdom that Hashem implanted into the animal kingdom. There was an article in National Geographic not long ago about two biologists who were studying Siberian tigers. And they found a number of cubs that apparently the mother had died, and these Siberian tiger cubs were orphaned pretty close to birth. And the biologists took them into their lab that they were living in, and they brought up these cubs on bottled milk and began nurturing them and bringing them into their young cubhood. At a certain point, the biologists realized that there wasn't much they would be able to do because these were wild tigers, and they were getting larger and beginning to get dangerous. So without any recourse, the biologists let these tigers out into the wild. And this is what they discovered. The tigers instantly began hunting and stalking exactly the right type of animal that would feed them. But not only did they instinctively know how to crouch, how to stalk, how to pounce, they knew how to kill, they knew exactly which organ to eat first, because instinctually within them are all of the desires, needs to keep that animal alive. Hashem imprinted into the nefesh Bahami everything that it needs to keep it in existence. And sometimes you see things that are rather, rather peculiar. One of the most amazing things is what's the emperor penguin. It's a herd, large, large, large herds of penguins that live in the South Arctic, and that's where they mate, that's where they spend their life. And it's fascinating to watch what happens. The female will lay a rather large egg, and when she lays the egg, she kind of puts it on her feet and waddles over to the male. She deposits it on the feet of the male. Now, if that egg touches the ice, it freezes and cracks, it'll never give birth to a baby, and she very gently waddles over and very gently places that egg onto the male's feet, the male standing with his feet together, and then the male has a pouch that covers the egg, and the male stands there in the freezing cold. The female will then go back to feed. She'll have to travel sometimes 40 to 70 miles to find a break in the ice, and she'll dive in, and for up to two months, she'll be feeding to build up her fats, so that when the baby is born, she'll have enough to sustain the baby at birth to childhood. During these two months, the male stands there, freezing cold, negative 40 degrees, howling winds, and he sits there, but he doesn't eat a food thing. He stands there, 
pouch covering the egg and doesn't move, he loses up to 25% of his body weight. Basically, he's starving to death. Until the two months later, when that female comes back, finds her mate, and then the egg hatches, the female is ready to feed the baby, and life continues. When you study the vast wisdom of the natural world, you see the wonders of creation, you see the wisdom of our Creator, and into each nefesh abahami, into each animal, Hashem implanted a nefesh, implanted an animal soul with all of the inclination, proclivities, and desires to keep that animal alive as well as to bring the next generation into existence. Within man, and that's you and I, there's also a nefesh abahami. Within me there are instincts, desires that are completely, totally based desires. No intellect, no intelligence, hungers, appetites, desires for various things. Everything that's needed to keep man alive, Hashem implanted as desires into the nefesh habahami of man, and that part is fully operative within man. Within me, though, there is an opposite part. There's what we call a neshama, a nefesh asichli, a brilliant part that was taken directly from under the kiseh kavod, and that part has also very real inclinations and desires, but very different than nefesh habahami. You see, the neshama, the nefesh sikhli, the intelligent part of the soul, only desires to do that which is right, what's good, what's proper. <clears throat> All it desires is to be noble and magnanimous, to help others, to serve my Creator, and <clears throat> to speak to Hashem. Everything that it desires is holy and pure. And the I who am speaking to you am comprised of these two competing parts. There's a part of me that's base desires, hungers, appetites. <laughs> And it is part of me that's brilliant, giving, kindly. And those two are constantly vying for primacy, constantly vying for control. The more you give in to one, the stronger it becomes. And the more you give in to the other, the stronger it becomes. Much like a muscle with exercise, it becomes strengthened. With lack of use, it atrophies. And the more you use your nefesh asikli, the brilliant and the shama part, the stronger it becomes, the weaker the nefesh abami has a hold over you. The more you give in to Nefesh Bahami, the stronger it becomes, and the weaker the Seichel has. There's a constant battle between these two forces. Now, let's ask the obvious question. Gee, golly, why? Why did Hashem make us that way? We were put on this planet to grow, to accomplish, to serve Hashem, and to learn, to daven, to do chesed, to perfect my midos. Wouldn't it have been much more convenient and much more efficient not to give me a Nefesh Bahami? Watch this. Imagine you wake up in the morning and all you want to do is help others, serve the Jewish nation, serve your Creator, do what's right, what's noble, what's proper. Could you imagine your growth? Could you imagine who you become? Within a few days you'd become a tzaddik. What do we need this other part for? All it does is it makes my life difficult, gives me constant battles, constant distraction, constant keeping me in, in utter contradiction. Why do it? And if you'd like to understand the answer to this, let's delve into a little bit more about this thing called creation. And to do that, let me ask you a very simple question. Does a malach have bechira? An angel. Does an angel have free will? So, since the time you're a little child, I'm sure you've learned that malachim don't have bechira. Adam, man has free will. Malachim, they don't have bechira. Well, you may have learned that since you're a little child, but I'm sorry to share with you the fact that that's incorrect. Totally, patently false. Malachim have Bechira, 
an angel has free will, just as man has a free will. There's no distinction. Many times malachim make mistakes, <coughs> they do things that are improper, they're punished for it. A malach has free will. If you'd like to understand the difference between me and a malach, it's not free will, it's something very, very different. And to understand that, let me ask you a question. Do you have free will to put your hand in a fire? Let's imagine for a minute I pulled out a $100 bill and I said to you, this $100 bill is yours if you put your hand in a fire for a minute. Oh, let's make it better, a thousand, ten thousand dollars I'll give you $10,000 if you place your hand in that hot fire for one minute. Do you have free will to do that? Now, the answer is, in theory, you have free will, but would you do it? No, it's absurd. It's it's self-inflicted damage. You would you would never do it. It's it's you wouldn't do it for a hundred thousand dollars for a million dollars because it's it's going to burn my hand. That's the foolish, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. Do you have free will to put your hand in the fire? The answer is you do, but you never would. That is the type of free will that a malach has. You see, a malach sees with absolute clarity that every mitzvah that Hashem gave the Jewish nation is for my benefit. It helps me, it allows me to become stronger, better, bigger. Every avera, every sin damages me. A malach has free will in a sense that it could listen or could not listen, but it so clearly sees the ramifications. It so clearly sees the results of the action that it would never choose badly. Anytime a malach makes a mistake, it's a slight error in judgment, maybe too much zeal for the honor of Hashem, or some slight judgment error, but they're not blinded. You see, the difference between I and a malach is not free will. The difference between I and the malach is I wear this heavy coat of physicality. And inside this body, I see very little. I'm blinded, and I'm in this state of constant conflict and competition. And one minute I want to do what's right, good, and proper. The next minute I couldn't care less. One minute I'm dominating, speaking to Hashem right there. The next minute my mind's gone and I'm 3,000 miles away. And if you'd like to understand why Hashem did it, because that's exactly our mission in life. To win that battle, to fight that fight, and to actually become that which I could be. You see, a malach is static. A malach basically can't grow. It was created on whatever level it is, but it is where it was formed, and that's where it remains. In the entire creation, the only entity that can grow is Adam, is man. Hashem put us into this very, very interesting conflict, and it's the choices that I make that will determine who I am forever. I can either rise to the stars or sink right into the mud, but every decision I make changes that balance. It either increases the Nefesh Abahami, the animal soul, or increases the Seichel, but it's that battle that determines who I'll be. But you see, thereby I'm credited with having shaped myself into who I am. If Hashem made us like a malach, of course we do what's right, what's good, what's proper, but it wasn't my choice. Much like a malach in theory could choose not to listen, like I could drink bleach or I could put my hand on the fire, but I never would, that's not called the free will that's credited to you, you making the choice. To give man the opportunity to shape himself, it has to be a challenge. It has to be a choice that he could go this way, go that way, and I chose this way, and because I chose this direction, I'm credited with the results. But that means by definition, I have to be able to go this way or go that way, and it has to be an equal balance. 
And when you understand this, you understand exactly why the human being is in utter, complete conflict. Because that's where the action's at. It's fighting those fights and winning those battles, becoming more like a Malach, more like Hashem, becoming more holy, letting the Nefesh HaSikli, my Neshama, come to the fore ever more, and allowing the Nefesh Bahami to become weaker and weaker. That's where the human being grows, that's where he hits the stars. With that in mind, the Chavaz Vavasik says, now you can understand many, many of the mitzvahs in the Torah. Now let me share with you one example. Let's look at the holiest day of the year, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a Yom Slich or Mechila. Yom Kippur is a day you can access Hashem in a way you can't during the rest of the year. It's clearly the single holiest day of the year, a day that a Jew really, really can grow. Now, wouldn't you imagine that if the Yom Kippur is the most important day of the year, most pivotal day of the year, wouldn't you imagine the Torah would say, before you come to shul in the morning, eat a big breakfast, make sure you have lots of energy, and make sure you have energy bars because you're going to need the koach, you're going to need the strength, make sure that you're well hydrated, and make sure your nutrition is right there because you've got a big job to do all day davening. Ironically, that's not quite what the Torah says to do. As a matter of fact, the Torah says, the inisem es nafshaseichem, you're not allowed to eat, you're not allowed to drink for 25 hours from the beginning of Yom Kippur until the end. Gee, golly, why? And if you understand how the human functions, you'll quickly understand why the Torah warns us about this. You see, what happens is when I begin Kol Nidre, I'm focused, I'm thinking, but I'm very, very much where I began Yom Kippur. It's not until the day starts wearing on, it's somewhere maybe 1 o'clock in the afternoon, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, there's a certain weakening of the body. And in that state, yes, it's true that I'm weaker, but there's a certain clarity of understanding that begins coming over me. Suddenly I could look back over my time usage during the year, I could look back about decisions that I made, I could look back at my direction and decide where I should be headed, what I should be doing, but it's with a new clarity. You see, the body begins weakening. When I start Yom Kippur, the body's in full strength. But as the fast begins weakening the body, the Nefesh Bahami, which is directly tied to the body, becomes weaker and weaker, and suddenly my Nefesh HaSichli is able to see things with greater clarity. I'm able to perceive things with greater understanding. It's true, I don't have the same vigor, the same strength, but I have a much clearer understanding. And the reason why the Torah doesn't want us eating is because it's a day of growth, and the best way to allow the Nefesh HaSichli and to come to the fore is to starve the Nefesh Bahami, to starve the body, so that the Neshama can reach its heights. And explains the Chobos Lavavos, it's not just fasting on Yom Kippur. He explains that most of the mitzvahs, and certainly many, many of what we call chukim, are exactly related to this issue. He explains Shatniz, Nida, Machal Sasuros, all of them. Why does the Torah warn us not to wear wool and linen? Wool Garment, fine. Linen garment, fine. Put them together, blammy, no good. He explains that certain forces in the world give an inordinate strengthening to the Nefesh Bahami. They give strength to it, much like caffeine. If you have a temper, you have to watch how much caffeine you take because it sort of gives you more of an edge. And there are certain activities that you involve yourself in that will give an extra strengthening to the Nefesh Bahami. <clears throat> explains the Chobaz Vavos. That's why the Torah tells us don't eat particular foods. Why? Because chazir has a potency. It has a certain power. Tray food is metamte meleved, dead in the heart. 
It's kind of like Novocaine. It's like, you know, when you go to the dentist and he gives you the Novocaine, and, and later that day you, you may be drooling, you don't even feel it because you, your mouth is deadened. <clears throat> Eating tray food deadens the heart. I can tell you, I've spoken many times to people who are not from yet, and they can't hear things. They can't perceive things. And I say to them, it's clear, there's a timtum alev, there's a deadening of the heart. There's a novocaine in the heart. And the reason why the Torah warns us about tray food is because it gives the Nefesh Bahami a tremendous amount of strengthening, and therefore in the balance it gives an unfair competition, and that's why the Torah warns us against us, and I believe that's exactly what Rashi is saying. <clears throat> Just like the Chola, the doctor went to the sick man who's going to live and says, don't eat these foods, but eat these foods. You're going to live forever. Hashem gave the Jewish people particular foods to eat. Why? <clears throat> because those foods will allow you to reach your potential will allow you to have clarity of vision. <clears throat> if you eat foods, macholos, asuras, tray foods, it's going to deaden your heart, it's going to change the balance, it's going to give the nefesh Bahami much more potency, much more strength. <clears throat> Therefore the Torah warns us about many, many things, including macholos, asuras, and that's why the Torah says, zosachayatoklu, this one you'll eat so that you live, because it's a big part of being a person who's going to live for eternity, because in the balance, <clears throat> those are the things I need so that I can reach a level for which I was created. And while this concept is fundamental to much of what we do, I like to focus on two applications of this, two areas where I think it's very, very significant. And to do that, let me share with you an interesting observation. When my wife, many years ago, had our first child, she went on the SIT diet. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the SIT diet, but... My wife is one of the sharpest people around, and I didn't expect her to do this. But the sit diet is basically consists of taking a large wedge of chocolate cake in this hand, a Diet Coke in this hand. You say the words, I'm so fat, I'm so fat, I'm so fat. Eat the entire wedge of chocolate cake, drink Diet Coke. That's a sit diet, the self-inflicted torture diet. Okay. Now, after our first child, my wife went on this diet, and I said to her at some point, this is not getting us very far. If you decide you want to be heavy, I'm okay with that. You want to be thin, I'm okay with that. But this self-inflicted torture stuff, it's not going anywhere. Anyway, <clears throat> going to help and as they say, I said, okay, we're going to Weight Watchers. Now, this was quite a number of years ago. I was in Kolo then, and <clears throat> I had a break during the midday. So <clears throat> I took my wife to a Weight Watchers meeting in the middle of the day, <clears throat> and I got to experience my first Weight Watchers meeting. Okay, now... I am, number one, the only male in the room, first of all. Number two, the instructor stands up and says, ladies, tell me about your week. One woman says, oh, I was doing so well on my diet, and then someone brought in potato chips. Oh, potato chips, I hear the other woman say. Another woman says, I was doing great, but then someone brought in chocolate donuts. Oh, chocolate donuts. And I witnessed these women losing it in front of my eyes. And I'd like to ask a very obvious question. What's so difficult there's a clear diet. No one starves. Three balanced meals, snacks, plenty of good nutrition. <clears throat> Why don't you just stick to the diet and do it? What's so difficult? And the answer is, if I were a different sort of creation, it wouldn't be difficult at all. If I would make a concrete decision not to eat chocolate cake, that'd be done. But that's not the way Hashem created us. <clears throat> you see, when I make that very firm intellectual decision... I will not touch another piece of chocolate cake for the next two months. That is a firm intellectual decision that remains in place, very, very strongly there. 
until that first wedge of chocolate cake is put in front of me. Mmm. No. Mmm. No. Mmm. No. Mm, no. And the battle begins. And that is us. The battle between two voices. A part of me that says, no, I don't want to do it. And a part of me that says, uh, 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 I want it. Which wins and determines who you'll be forever. Now, I'm not interested in your weight or whether you lose weight or gain weight. I'm talking about who you will be for eternity. And you see, who I am is based on exactly the kind of choices I make. When I have an opportunity to be kindly and good, and I follow that instinct or I resist it. When I want to say that line, and I know it's nasty and it's going to cut into the person, whether I say it or not, every one of those decisions shape me into who I will be for eternity. And those two voices are there forever. Ever, as long as I'm in this thing called life, as long as I'm here, those two voices are a part of me. And again, that understanding will allow you to understand many of the mitzvahs, but there's a much more important understanding from this. Do you ever get the feeling that, I don't know, the mitzvah is a little strange, you know, davening, can I really talk to Hashem? I would like to share with you that davening, Shabbos, kosher, is the most instinctive thing in the world to half of you. Now, it is true that there is a complete half of my personality that denies Hashem's presence. I relate to this world through my five senses. I can see, I can smell, I can hear, I can taste. All of my senses deny Hashem's presence. When I'm davening, what I'm doing is completely logging in to my nefesh sickly. I'm transcending physical boundaries. I'm speaking to my Creator. And there's a full half of me that utterly, completely recognizes that Hashem is present right here. Not 13 billion light years up in the sky, but right here. Now it's a battle, because there's the other part of me that says, hey, there's nobody here, you're talking to the wall guy, what are you doing? But there's a full half of me that intuitively, instinctively knows that Hashem is present right here. When it comes to Shabbos, there's a full half of me that completely relates to the Kedusha of the day, what I could accomplish during the day. Even eating a Shabbos suda properly is ruchni, is spiritual. There is a half of me that just says, let's eat. But if I learn to harness the other half of me, to use my neshama properly, to eat because it's Shabbos and it's Kodesh and it's a mitzvah, to do everything because it's what Hashem wants, there's a full half of me that instinctively, intuitively knows exactly what to do. And if you ever feel that certain mitzvahs are strange, you have to sort of open your ears and listen to that other part of you that knows that it's proper, it's right, it's natural, it's instinctive. Yes, there's another voice, and you have to learn to ignore that other voice, but the voice of your seichel, your neshama, will say to you, it's good, it's right, it's proper, that way to go. And that's one very, very important application of this concept. But I believe there's a second one that might be even more important. Ask a typical yeshiva bachar, what is the most important mitzvah? And hopefully he'll tell you, learning Torah. Now, here's the question. Why is learning Torah so important? There are lots of mitzvahs. In fact, there are 613 mitzvahs, one of which is Talmud Torah. But why is it that Talmud Torah keneged kulam? If you take all 100 and 612 on one side and put Torah on the other, Torah outweighs all 612. Why is that? 
And if you understand the human being, you'll understand why that's true. Learning Torah is relating directly to Hashem's words. That's the wisdom of Hashem, and that's Hashem's wisdom put into somewhat concrete form, certainly Olam Haz is somewhat in this world form, but it's one of the holiest activities a human being can engage in, because it's Hashem's machshavas, it's the pure thoughts of Hashem, and when you delve, when you bring yourself deeply into the understanding, and you rack your head on a tosas on a marsha, what you're doing is you're engaging the highest part of yourself, it's rocket fuel for the soul, and it literally lets your neshama light up, and if you don't learn, there's nothing else that's going to give you that strength. There's nothing else that's going to give you that energy, and you can do all the mitzvahs in the Torah. But if you're not going to learn, you'll never reach a fraction of what you could have been. Now, from a physical standpoint, much of the Torah doesn't matter, like irony dachas. You'll find many, many situations, the high of never, never happened, never will happen. And yet you'll study them. And if you learn a masechta, and you spend a lot of time in one Indian, and you know that factually it never happened and never will happen, it doesn't matter. It's Hashem's wisdom, and it has tremendous application to my neshama. It has eternal truth to it, and it powers my neshama. It gives light to my neshama. It changes the balance of me. I think this concept that Rashi is sharing with us is fundamental. Why shouldn't you eat tray food? Because you're destined to live forever. And that doctor went to the two cholim. And one cholim said, don't eat this, eat this because you're going to live. The other one, he said, eat what you want, it doesn't matter. The average guy is not slated for the world to come. Yes, there are some goyim who make it, but every Jew has a chalik in the world to come. A Jew is slated to make it in the world to come. And therefore Hashem says, eat these foods, don't eat these. But why? Because it changes the essence of you. Within me there are two voices. There's a nefesh sikli, which is good, which is noble, which is proper. There's a nefesh bahami, an animal soul, which is just base desires. Much like any animal in the wild kingdom has a nefesh, so too there's a nefesh within me. And within me this nefesh just wants to do whatever it was programmed to do, but there's no wisdom to it. And there's another part of me, the neshama, the seichel, that only wants to do what's good, what's right, what's proper, and the I who am speaking to you am in utter contradiction. One or the other is fighting for primacy, and one or the other wins out, and you and I are ever-changing. You are not today the same as you were yesterday, and tomorrow you'll be different, either up or down, but you're not going to be the same, because you're in constant battle. And when you understand that, A, you understand many of the mitzvahs, including shatnas and tray food and fasting on Yom Kippur, and many of the what's known as the chukim, they're a chok in a sense that how they operate, how they change in Efesh Bahami is beyond our understanding, but the method, the system, is that they give inordinate strengthening to Nefesh Bahami. And when you understand that, you understand the Torah system. But even more than that, you understand how much we are primed and ready to grow and accomplish. There's a full half of me that knows exactly what to do, what to say, and how to accomplish it. And as a matter of fact, I've heard my Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, often say, when you get to that dilemma, when you get to that question, you don't know what to do. Obviously, if you can be Shoal 8, so you ask, ask people older, ask people younger, certainly if you have a Das Torah, ask your Rav. But there are many, many situations where you can't ask, or there is no answer. What do you do? So the Shiva Zetzal used to say, you close your eyes and ask yourself one question. 
what is the right thing to do. But, 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 no, no. I don't care the consequences. I don't care the result. What is the right thing to do? <clears throat> if you ask yourself what is the right thing to do, you'll know. Why? Because you have an neshama. The neshama is brilliant. The neshama is pure. The neshama came from under Hashem's throne of glory and it knows exactly what to do. It's that other voice. It says, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. But if you shut that other voice off and just ask yourself what is the right thing to do and listen to the answer, you'll know exactly what to do in that situation because Hashem would not put you into a situation that you didn't have the capacity to know what to do. And when you train yourself to listen to that voice, you spend your life growing and growing. You're not going to do everything right. You're not going to hit every home run. But you're going to grow and accomplish and you're going to know where to go, how to go, and how to get there. So number one, this concept is important to understand all the mitzvahs in the Torah. Number two, it's important to recognize how we are primed, that we are ready for ruchnius. Ruchnius is natural. Spirituality is instinctive to me, to a full half of me, if I could learn to ignore the other half. The great secret in life is winning those battles. The reason why Hashem created us that way is because we're not like a malach. We're given credit for winning those fights, but the fights are real. The challenges are great. And the third element is it allows us to understand the vitality of limerat Torah, of learning, because again, <clears throat> it is rocket fuel for the soul. It's the only thing that gives that kind of superpower to the neshama. And I'd like to close with one last observation. Many years ago, <clears throat> for some of you who remember, <clears throat> when word processes first came out, they were very clunky and very tricky to use. And <clears throat> when you used to use an old-style word processor, if you wanted to underline a word, you would type an open bracket, a U, and a closed bracket. And that's what you'd see on the screen, and that would signal the printer to underline that word. If you wanted a bolder word, you'd put an open bracket, a B, and a closed bracket. Again, that's what you'd see on the screen, and that would be a signal to the printer to print it bold. Somewhere in the late 1980s, a new technology was devised called WYSIWYG. And WYSIWYG is an acronym for what you see is what you get. So now if you open up Microsoft Word and you click the B, on the screen you see the word bolded. If you want to underline a word, you click the U, and on the screen you see it underlined. What you see on the screen is what you get in the printer, and WYSIWYG is a wonderful technology. I'd like to share with you that WYSIWYG is also a very important muscle for what it's like when we leave this earth. You see, at a certain point, many, many years from now, my body will be put in the ground. It's over. Curtain comes down, game over. My body's put in the ground, and I separate. And if you'd like to know what that moment is like, it's what you see is what you get. At that moment, exactly what I shaped myself into, exactly what I made myself into, is who I am for eternity. With all of my good, and all of the not so good, and all of the fine traits that I acquired, and all of the selfish ones that I kept along. But I spent a lifetime shaping myself, making myself, and that's who I am for eternity. And if you'd like to understand why that's very relevant, let's imagine it for a moment. Let's imagine that we meet, again, many, many, many years from now, and we meet again in the world to come. I see you, and you see me. And you look at me and go, Oh, Rabbi Schaefer, wow, I'm very impressed. You worked on this and that. Wow, very nice. But, oh, Rabbi, oh, oh, Rabbi, I didn't realize you. You see, we all have things. We all got stuff. Things that we're not so proud of. Things that we hide from the world. At that moment, I'll be stripped bare. No hiding behind a body. 
no lies, no cloaks of physicality. You will see me for exactly what I shape myself into. I will see you for exactly what you shape yourself into. What you see is what you get. And when you understand that, that's a huge motivating force to help make the right decisions. Every single action I'm engaging in now, every single activity, every single thought shapes me, molds me for eternity. Who I am is exactly based on one thing, what choices I made. When you understand all the mitzvahs strengthen me, Limonat Torah certainly gives me strength, but all of the mitzvahs combined to give me strength and energy to mold me into that. You pursue mitzvahs with energy, with zeal, with vigor. And you understand every Avera damages me. It's metamtem. It deadens the heart. It makes it harder to do mitzvahs, harder to grow. You run from them like running from a fire. With this understanding, you approach life properly. And now I'd like to open the floor to questions, thoughts, observations. They could be on this subject or any other topic. Uh, we do have a few questions that were emailed in already, but please feel free to raise your hand for questions. Uh, please feel free. Uh, we see we only have a few brave people each week. Only a few brave people raise their hand. I used to have ushy partners just to tell people, "Don't be shy. Raise your hand. Questions. Please feel free. No one's gonna. No one's holding you to these questions." Okay, Avram, you got the floor, Avram. Good evening, Rabbi. Good evening, hi. Um, so my first question is, um, when, when, when somebody's born, before anything's on his account, uh, whether growing or, or damaging, what level is he at? Is he Samota Malach, greater than a Malach, below a Malach? Okay, that's, he, a, that's a fine question. Um, so when a human being is born... He is he's not as holy as a malach. He has a potential to be way, way holier than a malach. Meaning, the neshama is the only entity that can change the essence of it. When it's born, and even in this physical state, malachim, there, there are many, many types of malachim, many, many levels of malachim, but all of them are more pure than man, all of them are holier than man, all of them are on a higher level. The question is what you do with your time here. So if you grow and accomplish, you'll, be, you'll outshine any malach in the sky. You'll, they'll look at you with awe and trepidation. If you spend your time in, inappropriately or improperly, then, then it's the opposite. So really, it's based on one thing, which is what choices you make. Yes, I asked. Okay. Um, I, had another quick, I also had another quick question yep. uh, pertaining to Kippur. I was wondering, um, if, comparing uh, two people who are... One is Donald and the other one is uh, between themselves. Wait, say, what, what, say, just say it again. I'm sorry, you didn't hear that. Just say it again, please. On Yom Kippur, yeah. one who dives, you know, all day, yeah. versus somebody who's who's trying his best to dive all day, but is either taking care of him or herself, or family member who's ill, and therefore they don't dive in all day because they're helping out a family member and they're <laughs> right. trying their best. Are they right. still both? Uh, still for themselves being uh, gaining whatever they could out of Yom Kippur Good. a particular year? Good, excellent question. So let me, let me be facetious for a minute. <clears throat> Let's imagine the following. Hashem says, do this, but it's going to damage you, it's going to hurt you, you're going to lose the important day of the year. <laughs> I don't think so. Meaning, <clears throat> if you're following the Torah, that's the greatest ruchnius. That's what Hashem wants you to do. <clears throat> what Hashem wants more than anything is your growth. And if your job right now is not to be in shul davening, it's rather to be taking care of your kids or your wife or your sick mother, whatever it may be, that's the Ratzon Hashem. 
there's nothing like doing the rotz doing the rotz on Hashem is that's ultimately the growth. You know, it may feel holier to spend the whole day in shul chuckling, but if it's not what Hashem wants you to do, then what you're doing is you're damaging yourself. You're violating Hashem's will. You think you're very holy. You think you're very from and proper, but you're violating the rotz on Hashem. And guess what? You're not going to grow from that. The opposite. Violating Hashem's will is called a sin. It damages you. It makes you inferior. So the answer is, you trust Hashem to know what He's doing, and you follow the Torah, and if the right thing to do now is to dominate shul, you dominate shul. The right thing to now is to take care of someone else, whatever it may be, then that's what you do. And each one of those, you know, and by the way, let me interrupt myself, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to do that, that's not considered rude. And Derech Hashem says something incredible. He says that if a person eats properly, a person walks as he's supposed to, learns his, that has the same power as any mitzvah in the Torah. He says any physical activity that you do, it's almost like a human being's an alchemist. You know, we know things that are called ruchnias, mitzvahs, peransitzitz, tzilim, mezuzah, okay, those are mitzvahs. <clears throat> Derech Hashem explains that if you eat because I need energy to serve Hashem, that is a mitzvah that has the same potency on your neshama as does tzilim, tzitzitz, or mezuzah, and man is an alchemist. He can take physical actions, mundane, plain physical actions, and elevate them to be tremendous mitzvahs. That's one of the opportunities of life that Hashem gave us. So the rule of thumb is follow what Hashem wants and trust Hashem to know what He's doing. And you do that, that's that's how you ultimately you grow. Thank All right? You so much. Okay, okay. Okay, Binyamin Pesach, do we get you? Did I get it? I think I did. I hope I did. Hi, Rabbi. Hi, how are you? How's it going? Good, good, Baruch Hashem. Uh, first of all, just as an aside, yeah. um, even with the the uh, WYSIWYG, that just means what you see on the front. Everything is still, there's still code behind the scenes. Like if you see a web page with HTML, there's still that open bracket, open bold, open close bold, all that other stuff. Oh. So that's, that's all happening behind the scenes. You just don't see it. But in the code, that's still in okay, there. Got if it. coding it by hand, you would still have to do all those same things. Got it, got it. Okay. Um, okay. Lamai uh, So we, we have uh, our Nefesh uh, Sichli, Yetzer Tov. It all seems to be one one big combination. Okay. And at the same time, we have our we discussion in the Sefer Moser about Nefesh Sichli versus Nefesh Bahamas and Yetzer Tov versus Yetzer Ara. And it seems to be Nefesh Sichli versus Nefesh Bahamas is more physical, instinctual type battles, and maybe the the Yetzer Tov Yetzer are uh, Seichel type battles where he's trying to win you over logically, and then obviously there's ones where there's components of both. So there's one. Any this is an area when learning through this form, I always have difficulty trying to understand. It's like it's like a one versus two. We're like we're being ganged up on between the Yitzhara and, and the uh, Nefesh Bahamas. Okay, good. So so right. like a, a better understand discussion of how that works and how we can how we can fight yeah. and decide those right. battles, particularly when they are both elements of both in them. Right. Okay. Be, very good question. Okay, so Rabbi Salanta explains that when Chazal used the word Yetzirah, they're referring to two discrete, two totally separate things. And one is the Nefesh Bahami. That's called the Yetzirah because it's the, it's not really Ra, it's the Yetzir like any animal, you know, any animal in the kingdom. <clears throat> Additionally, Chazal used that very same expression to refer to the Sutton whose job it is to tempt me to try to get me to sin. Um, one of the shrews might deal with this more at length, why Hashem put the sun into operation, but the sun's job is to keep an even playing field. The sun is a spiritual force, he's a malach, who's on the job 24-7, 364, <clears throat> given one job. 
He's allowed to tempt me, to try to get me to sin, but he's only allowed to go so far. He's contained exactly to keep me within a <clears throat> clear, even playing field. He's not allowed too much potency because then he'd blow me out of the water. <clears throat> he doesn't. He operates at exactly the level to keep things even. So <clears throat> the reason why it's confusing. Well, so if it was just the nefesh of Bahamas versus the versus the nefesh sichli, nefesh sichli, if uh, any a developed person would win. Yeah, what would happen is within a very few short time, when a short time the nefesh of sichli becomes so powerful, <clears throat> nefesh Bahamas becomes so weak. There'd be no purpose of life. There's no growth. So <clears throat> within a few years, <clears throat> you'd grow, you'd accomplish, and then you're done. The Nefesh Bahami doesn't function anymore, and therefore <clears throat> there's no Bechira anymore. Therefore, well, it's, not, it's not. It's it functions. It's just like the, the, the it's it's a, it's a horse with a rider. As I think the well, the, the, well, the point is at that point, if the Nefesh Sitli becomes so strong, <clears throat> Nefesh Bahami has no no voice, so to speak. So then it's there's no Bechira, there's no temptation, there's no balance, there's no fight. Therefore, there's no growth. So therefore, to allow for constant growth, and when that balance changes, Hashem allows the Sutton to fill in the gap so that there's always an even balance, that there's always Bechira. Right, right. So the, the question that I have is, keeping that in mind, that was the, that was the starting place, no, as start. far as how do we fight, how do we, how do we fight, meaning there's some battles which we have, unfortunately, our generation, I think still a lot of battles with Nefesh Bahami. Yep. We can see the fact that we have so many people who deal with the, being overweight and other other basic basic physical temptations, uh, sleeping too much, uh, other tivas that people are running after. There's still a lot of battles that are that are really Nefesh Bahami battles. Mm-hmm. And then there are other ones where which we seem they're primarily uh, sickly type battles, which would be Yitzhar battles. And then there are ones that where the Yitzhar kind of uses both. He, he he turns it. So I'm like, as far as what's the way the angle of attack? Do we say okay, this is a Nefesh Bahami battle, and therefore I fight it like this? This is a Seichelic battle, and therefore I fight it like this? Or so we, the, we... the the one thing that you understand is exactly what Mr. Sharm says: life is a battle. From the moment you enter this world until you leave it. There's going to be constant fights, constant <clears throat> battles on every side. <clears throat> That's a Lushan, right? The first paragraph, Mishra Sharm says, <clears throat> the Muhammad on every side, it's a pitched, fever pitch battle. Exactly which one, it's very hard to discern because it's hard to see <clears throat> which voice. It's Because, you see, normally the Sutton speaks through the Nefesh Bahami. It's at like, right. come on, That's come on. <clears throat> right, so it's not always easy to discern which is which, <clears throat> but ultimately... You know you're fighting a battle, and you know you have to resist it, and you know what you're supposed to do. There's an important schmooze that I deal with this. Um, it's there are two in a row. One is called Sutton Out of the Box, and the other is Tricks of the Sutton. I think it's 30... I don't know what they are. Number, those are the names. I forgot the numbers already. It's Again, one is called Sutton Out of the Box, and the other one's Tricks of the Sutton. I think it's 35 and 36, I think. I used to know the numbers. But if you look on the site, you'll see that it deals with these exactly these two issues, and I, I deal with it at, at length. Look for those names, Sutton Out of Box and Tricks of the Sutton. All right, Minyamin and Pesach, thank you very much. Nice talking to you. And disable. And Grace at Tzaddik, it's been a long time, a long time. We haven't heard from you. Shalom Aleichem, how are you? Uh, it was Passover, so it's not my fault. It's uh, all Jews. <laughs> you know, they celebrate. It's all, so it's all that matzah. I couldn't. I got me so. I couldn't talk. Yeah, I know. Okay, good. Right, 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 right. But meanwhile, I was uh, listening to another schmooze about Yon, Jonah and the fish. Ah, I mm. heard this story like plain and simple, like years ago. But now I hear your. I heard your schmooze, and it was indeed like big fish swallow poor Jonah, and he was too comfortable in the 
big fish. It was plenty of room, big screen TV with Netflix. Hulu, Hulu, yeah, right. Hulu, whatever, yeah. So he called another fish, female fish, mm -hmm. who was pregnant. And big fish spit him out, and another fish swallowed him. It was no Netflix, uh, no room, no nothing. And she started praying with Kavona, right? With Kavona, right. proper word. Right. And uh, <clears throat> the fish spit him out again. So my question is, um, <clears throat> how much vodka I have to drink? Oh, Edward, oh, Edward, you didn't eat the matzah properly. Matzah is an Amuna sandwich, but okay. <clears throat> Edward, do you believe in seeds? Do you believe a little seed brings forth a tree? Do you believe <clears throat> a 10,000 pounds of an oak tree came from a tiny little acorn? That you could believe in, but that God in, runs the world still, that you can't well, believe. Uh -huh. God could create a human baby, a human baby, trillions of cells, without any human intervention, in the mother's womb, the most complex entity no human being can ever dream of. That God can do, but can God split the sea? I don't know about that. That's kind of pushing it, God. Let's not... Okay, I hear the question. All right, good, okay. good. I understand that the answer I can because you said eat more kosher food. I, I have to eat glad kosher. But exactly. I understand everything. Okay, yeah, thank you good. very much. For All right, Eric. Good. Thank you for visiting. Thanks. Okay, I'm going to take one question that was uh, uh, a few questions were typed in over here. <clears throat> one question is actually before I take the question, I just want to mention again if you'd like the pre publication copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, again, the book is not published yet. It's going to be published in Hashem in a few months. But you can still get a pre-publication copy. The advantage of getting the pre-publication copy is, A, you get to read it now. But more importantly, I get the feedback. You get to tell me what works, what doesn't work. And, I mean, it's really, it's, it's pretty much ready to go to press, but I definitely would like, uh, I would like the feedback. But, again, also you get to read it ahead of time. If you go to the schmooze.com, you'll see on the top a banner, you can order a copy of it. Uh, just go to the schmooze.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com, and you could order it there. All right, let me take one more question here. <clears throat> Technically, if Talmud Torah can aid kulam, if, meaning if Torah is more important than all other mitzvahs, then shouldn't one always learn instead of helping others? How can this be? Okay, so that is, again, a very good question. I think I addressed it a little bit um, <clears throat> when Avram asked. And really, the answer is <clears throat> that the human being requires perfection. But perfection cuts across many, many different dimensions. And I have a muscle that I think well defines it. Imagine that you decide you want to be a big, powerful guy. I want to be big and buff. There are two things you have to do. You have to eat the right nutrients. You have to eat lots of food, lots of protein. And you got to go to the gym and work out. Now, if you eat lots of steaks and lots of protein and plenty of carbohydrates, but don't work out, you're going to get big, but you're going to get big and fat. On the other hand, if you go to the gym but you don't eat more nutrients, you're not going to grow either. It's two things that are needed. <clears throat> Torah is the nutrition. Torah is the rocket fuel for the soul. But the nishonos of life are what shape you. It's the challenges, being learning to be a balchesed, learning to be kindly, <clears throat> learning to control my temper, learning to say the right things at the right time. That's the <clears throat> going to the gym. That's the shaping of the human being. So <clears throat> in theory, could a person learn all day and become as great? Uh, the proof in the pudding is Hashem says no, because Hashem gave us various mitzvahs. Now there were generations of Shemir Bar-Yechai and Chaverov, but other than super, super humans, what we need is we need the battles of life 
And it's only by winning those battles that we get the exercise to allow the Torah nutrients to allow us to build. But it's two things. Torah is a nourishment, but the fights of life are really what make you into what you'll be for eternity. Okay, thank you all for joining. Again, if you'd like a copy of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, please go to the shmooz.com, T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. If you're not getting, if you're not part of the Shmooz WhatsApp Chizik group, and you'd like to get inspirational, motivational videos, we send out three to four a week. They're short, two-minute videos. If you'd like to join that, please send a, please subscribe to 845-216-9330. Again, that's 845-216-9330. Thank you. Have a good Shabbos. Mr. Shem will see you next week.